Chapter Nine, Part Three of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man in the Inverness Cape, Part Three. Miss Er Lulu Fay, mind you, never contradicted in any one particular the original story which she had told me about going out to supper with Leonard Marvel, entrusting him with two hundred pounds and the diamonds which he said he would have reset for her and seeing him finally in close conversation with her recognized fiancé, Lord Montnute. Miss Marvel, on the other hand, very commendably refused to admit that her brother acted dishonestly towards the girl. If he had her jewels and money in his possession at the time of his disappearance, then he had undoubtedly been robbed, or perhaps murdered, on his way back to the hotel, and if Lord Montnute had been the last to speak to him on that fatal night, then Lord Montnute must be able to throw some light on the mysterious occurrence. Our fellows at the yard were abnormally active. It seemed, on the face of it, impossible that a man, healthy, vigorous, and admittedly sober, should vanish in London, between Piccadilly Circus and Cromwell Road, without leaving the slightest trace of himself or of the valuables said to have been in his possession. Of course, Lord Montnute was closely questioned. He was a young guardsman of the usual pattern, and after a great deal of vapid talk, which irritated Detective Inspector Saunders not a little, he made the following statement. "'I certainly am acquainted with Miss Lulu Fay. On the night in question I was standing outside the truck, when I saw this young lady, at her own carriage window, talking to a tall man in an Inverness cape. She had, earlier in the day, refused my invitation to supper, saying that she was not feeling very well and would go home directly after the theatre. Therefore I felt, naturally, a little vexed. I was just about to hail a taxi, meaning to go on to the club, when, to my intense astonishment, the man in the Inverness cape came up to me, and asked if I could tell him the best way to get back to Cromwell Road. "'And what did you do?' asked Saunders. "'I walked a few steps with him and put him on his way,' replied Lord Mountnewte blandly. In Saunders' own expressive words, he thought that story fishy. He could not imagine the arm of coincidence being quite so long as to cause these two men, who presumably were both in love with the same girl, and who had just met at a moment when one of them was obviously suffering pangs of jealousy, to hold merely a topographical conversation with one another. But it was equally difficult to suppose that the eldest son and heir of the Marquis of Loam should murder a successful rival and then rob him in the streets of London. Moreover, here came the eternal and unanswerable questions. If Lord Montnute had murdered Leonard Marvel, where and how had he done it, and what had he done with the body? I dare say you are wondering by this time why I have said nothing about the maid, Rosie Campbell. Well, plenty of very clever people, I mean those who write letters to the papers and give suggestions to every official department in the kingdom, thought that the police ought to keep a very strict eye upon that pretty Scotch lassie, for she was very pretty, and had quaint, demure ways which rendered her singularly attractive, in spite of the fact that, for most masculine tastes, she would have been considered too tall. Of course, Saunders and Danvers kept an eye on her, you may be sure of that, and got a good deal of information about her from the people at the hotel. Most of it, unfortunately, was irrelevant to the case. She was made attendant to Miss Marvel, who was feeble in health, and who went out but little. Rosie waited on her master and mistress upstairs, carrying their meals to their private room and doing their bedrooms, 
The rest of the day she was fairly free, and was quite sociable downstairs with the hotel staff. With regard to her movements and actions on that memorable 3rd of February, Saunders, though he worked very hard, could glean but little useful information. You see, in a hotel of that kind, with an average of thirty to forty guests at one time, it is extremely difficult to state positively what any one person did or did not do on that particular day. Most people at the Scotia remembered that Miss Marvel dined in the table d'hôte room on that 3rd of February. This she did about once a fortnight, when her maid had an evening out. The hotel staff also recollected fairly distinctly that Miss Rosie Campbell was not in the steward's room at supper-time that evening, but no one could remember definitely when she came in. One of the chambermaids who occupied the bedroom adjoining hers said she heard her moving about soon after midnight. The hall porter declared that he saw her come in just before half-past twelve when he closed the doors for the night. But one of the ground-floor valets said that, on the morning of the fourth, he saw Miss Marvel's maid, in hat and coat, slip into the house and upstairs, very quickly and quietly, soon after the front doors were opened, namely, about 7 a.m. Here, of course, was a direct contradiction between the chambermaid and hall porter on the one side, and the valet on the other, whilst Miss Marvel said that Campbell came into her room and made her some tea, long before seven o'clock every morning, including that of the fourth. I assure you our fellows at the yard were all ready to tear their hair out by the roots, from sheer aggravation at this maze of contradictions, which met them at every turn. The whole thing seemed so simple. There was nothing to it, as it were, but very little real suggestion of foul play. And yet Mr. Leonard Marvel had disappeared, and no trace of him could be found. Everyone now talked freely of murder. London is a big town, and this would not have been the first instance of a stranger, for Mr. Leonard Marvel was practically a stranger in London, being enticed to a lonely part of the city on a foggy night, and there done away with and robbed, and the body hidden in an out-of-the-way cellar, where it might not be discovered for months to come. But the newspaper-reading public is notably fickle, and Mr. Leonard Marvel was soon forgotten by everyone, save the chief and the batch of our fellows who had charge of the case. Thus I heard through Danvers one day that Rosie Campbell had left Miss Marvel's employ, and was living in rooms in Finlater Terrace near Wallam Green. I was alone in our Maida Vale flat at the time, my dear lady having gone to spend the weekend with the dowager Lady Loam, who was an old friend of hers. Nor, when she returned, did she seem any more interested in Rosie Campbell's movements than she had been hitherto. Yet another month went by, and I for one had absolutely ceased to think of the man in the Inverness cape, who had so mysteriously, and so completely vanished, in the very midst of busy London, when, one morning early in January, Lady Molly made her appearance in my room, looking more like the landlady of a disreputable gambling-house than anything else I could imagine. "'What in the world?' I began. "'Yes, I think I look the part,' she replied, surveying with obvious complacency the extraordinary figure which confronted her in the glass. My dear lady had on a purple cloth coat and skirt of a peculiarly vivid hue, and of a singular cut, which made her matchless figure look like a sack of potatoes. Her soft brown hair was quite hidden beneath a transformation of that yellow-reddish tint only to be met with in very cheap dyes. As for her hat, I won't attempt to describe it. It towered above and around her face, which was plentifully covered with brick-red, 
and with that kind of powder which causes the cheeks to look a deep mauve. My dear lady looked, indeed, a perfect picture of appalling vulgarity. "'Where are you going in this elegant attire?' I asked in amazement. "'I have taken rooms in Finlater Terrace,' she replied lightly. "'I feel that the air of Walham Green will do us both good. Our amiable, if somewhat slatternly landlady, expects us in time for luncheon. You will have to keep rigidly in the background, Mary, all the while we are there. I said that I was bringing an invalid niece with me, and as a preliminary you may as well tie two or three thick veils over your face. I think I may safely promise that you won't be dull. And we certainly were not dull during our brief stay at 34 Finlater Terrace, Wallam Green. Fully equipped and arrayed in our extraordinary garments, we duly arrived there in a rickety four-wheeler, on the top of which were perched two seedy-looking boxes. The landlady was a toothless old creature, who apparently thought washing a quite unnecessary proceeding. In this she was evidently at one with every one of her neighbors. Findlater Terrace looked unspeakably squalid. Groups of dirty children congregated in the gutters, and gave forth discordant shrieks as our cab drove up. Through my thick veils I thought that, some distance down the road, I spied a horsey-looking man in ill-fitting riding-breeches and gaiters, who vaguely reminded me of Danvers. Within half an hour of our installation, and whilst we were eating a tough steak over a doubtful tablecloth, my dear lady told me that she had been waiting a full month until rooms in this particular house happened to be vacant. Fortunately, the population in Finlater Terrace is always a shifting one, and Lady Molly had kept a sharp eye on number 34, where, on the floor above, lived Miss Rosie Campbell. Directly the last set of lodgers walked out of the ground-floor rooms, we were ready to walk in. My dear lady's manners and customs, whilst living at the above aristocratic address, were fully in keeping with her appearance. The shrill, rasping voice which she assumed echoed from attic to cellar. One day I heard her giving vague hints to the landlady that her husband, Mr. Marcus Stein, had had a little trouble with the police about a small hotel which he had kept somewhere near Fitzroy Square, and where young gentlemen used to come and play cards of a night. The landlady was also made to understand that the worthy Mr. Stein was now living temporarily at His Majesty's expense, while Mrs. Stein had to live a somewhat secluded life, away from her fashionable friends. The misfortunes of the pseudo-Mrs. Stein in no way marred the amiability of Mrs. Treadwen, our landlady. The inhabitants of Finlater Terrace care very little about the antecedents of their lodgers, so long as they pay their week's rent in advance, and settle their extras without much murmur. This Lady Molly did, with a generosity characteristic of an ex-lady of means. She never grumbled at the quantity of jam and marmalade which we were supposed to have consumed every week, and which anon reached titanic proportions. She tolerated Mrs. Treadwin's cat, tipped Ermintrude, the tousled lodging-house slavey, lavishly, and lent the upstairs lodger her spirit-lamp and curling-tongs when Miss Rosie Campbell's got out of order. A certain degree of intimacy followed the loan of those curling-tongs. Miss Campbell, reserved and demure, greatly sympathized with the lady who was not on the best of terms with the police. I kept steadily in the background. The two ladies did not visit each other's rooms, but they held long and confidential conversations on the landings, and I gathered, presently, that the pseudo-Mrs. Stein had succeeded in persuading Rosie Campbell that, 
If the police were watching number 34, Findlater Terrace, at all, it was undoubtedly on account of the unfortunate Mr. Stein's faithful wife. I found it a little difficult to fathom Lady Molly's intentions. We had been in the house over three weeks, and nothing whatever had happened. Once I ventured on a discreet query as to whether we were to expect the sudden reappearance of Mr. Leonard Marvell. For if that's all about it, I argued, then surely the men from the yard could have kept the house in view without all this inconvenience and masquerading on our part. But to this tirade my dear lady vouchsafed no reply. She and her newly acquired friend were, about this time, deeply interested in the case known as the West End Shop Robberies, which no doubt you recollect, since they occurred such a very little while ago. Ladies who were shopping in the large drapers' emporiums during the crowded and busy sale time lost reticules, purses, and valuable parcels, without any trace of the clever thief being found. The drapers, during sale time, invariably employ detectives in plain clothes to look after their goods, but in this case it was the customers who were robbed, and the detectives, attentive to every attempt at shoplifting, had had no eyes for the more subtle thief. I had already noticed Miss Rosie Campbell's keen look of excitement whenever the pseudo-Mrs. Stein discussed these cases with her. I was not a bit surprised, therefore, when one afternoon, at about tea-time, my dear lady came home from her habitual walk, and at the top of her shrill voice called out to me from the hall, "'Mary! Mary! They've got the man of the shop robberies. He's given the silly police the slip this time, but they know who he is now, and I suppose they'll get him presently. "'Tisn't anybody I know,' she added, with that harsh common laugh which she had adopted for her part. I came out of the room in response to her call, and was standing just outside our own sitting-room door. Mrs. Treadwin, too, bedraggled and unkempt as usual, had sneaked up the area steps, closely followed by Ermintrude. But on the half-landing just above us, the trembling figure of Rosie Campbell, with scared white face and dilated eyes, looked on the verge of a sudden fall. Still talking shrilly and volubly, Lady Molly ran up to her, but Campbell met her halfway, and the pseudo-Mrs. Stein, taking vigorous hold of her wrist, dragged her into our own sitting-room. "'Pull yourself together now,' she said with rough kindness. "'That owl Treadwin is listening, and you needn't let her know too much. "'Shut the door, Mary. "'Lord bless you, my dear. "'I've gone through worse scares than these. "'There, you just lie down on this sofa a bit. "'My niece'll make you a nice cup of tea, "'and I'll go and get an evening paper and see what's going on. "'I suppose you're very interested in the shop robbery man, "'or you wouldn't have took on so.' "'Without waiting for Campbell's contradiction to this statement,' Lady Molly flounced out of the house. Miss Campbell hardly spoke during the next ten minutes that she and I were left alone together. She lay on the sofa with eyes wide open, staring up at the ceiling, evidently still in a great state of fear. I had just got tea ready when Lady Molly came back. She had an evening paper in her hand, but threw this down on the table directly she came in. "'I could only get an early edition,' she said breathlessly, "'and the silly thing hasn't got anything in it about the matter.' She drew near the sofa, and subduing the shrillness of her voice, she whispered rapidly, bending down towards Campbell. "'There's a man hanging about at the corner down there.' "'No, no, it's not the police,' she added quickly, in response to the girl's sudden start of alarm. "'Trust me, my dear, for no one a tech when I see one. Why, I'd smell one half a mile off. No, my opinion is that it's your man, my dear, and that he's in a devil of a hole.' "'Oh, yond have come here.' ejaculated Campbell, in great alarm. 
"'He'll get me into trouble and do himself no good. "'He's been a fool,' she added, with a fierceness wholly unlike her usual demure placidity. "'Getting himself caught like that, now I suppose we'll have to hook it, if there's time.' "'Can I do anything to help you?' asked the pseudo-Mrs. Stein. "'You know I've been through all this myself, when they was after Mr. Stein. "'Or perhaps Mary could do something.' "'Well, yes,' said the girl after a slight pause, during which she seemed to be gathering her wits together. "'I'll write a note, and you shall take it, if you will, to a friend of mine, a lady who lives in the Cromwell Road. But if you still see a man lurking about the corner of the street, then, just as you pass him, say the word Campbell, and if he replies, Rosie, then give him the note. Will you do that?' "'Of course I will, my dear. Just you leave it all to me.' and the pseudo-Mrs. Stein brought ink and paper and placed them on the table. Rosie Campbell wrote a brief note, and then fastened it down with a bit of sealing-wax, before she handed it over to Lady Molly. The note was addressed to Miss Marvel, Scotia Hotel, Cromwell Road. "'You understand,' she said eagerly. "'Don't give the note to the man, unless he says Rosie, in reply to the word Campbell.' "'All right, all right,' said Lady Molly slipping the note into her reticule. "'And you go up to your room, Miss Campbell. It's no good giving that fool Treadwin too much to gossip about.' Rosie Campbell went upstairs, and presently my dear lady and I were walking rapidly down the badly lighted street. "'Where is the man?' I whispered eagerly, as soon as we were out of earshot of number 34. "'There is no man,' replied Lady Molly quickly. "'But the West End shop thief?' I asked. He hasn't been caught yet, and won't be either, for he is far too clever a scoundrel to fall into an ordinary trap. She did not give me time to ask further questions, for presently, when we had reached Reporton Square, my dear lady handed me the note written by Campbell, and said, "'Go straight to the Scotia Hotel, and ask for Miss Marvel, and send up the note to her, but don't let her see you, as she knows you by sight. I must see the chief first, and will be with you as soon as possible.' Having delivered the note, you must hang about outside as long as you can. Use your wits. She must not leave the hotel before I see her. There was no hansom to be got in this elegant quarter of town, so having parted from my dear lady, I made for the nearest underground station, and took a train for South Kensington. Thus it was nearly seven o'clock before I reached the Scotia. In answer to my inquiries for Miss Marvel, I was told that she was ill in bed and could see no one. I replied that I had only brought a note for her, and would wait for a reply. Acting on my dear lady's instructions, I was as slow in my movements as ever I could be, and was some time in finding the note and handing it to a waiter, who then took it upstairs. Presently he returned with the message, Miss Marvel says there is no answer, whereupon I asked for pen and paper at the office, and wrote the following brief note on my own responsibility, using my wits as my dear lady had bidden me to do. Please, madam, I wrote, will you send just a line to Miss Rosie Campbell? She seems very upset and frightened at some news she has had. Once more the waiter ran upstairs, and returned with a sealed envelope, which I slipped into my reticule. Time was slipping by very slowly. I did not know how long I should have to wait outside in the cold, when, to my horror, I heard a hard voice with a marked Scotch accent saying, "'I am going out, waiter, and shan't be back to dinner.' tell them to lay a little cold supper upstairs in my room. The next moment Miss Marvel, with coat, hat, and veil, was descending the stairs. My plight was awkward. 
I certainly did not think it safe to present myself before the lady. She would undoubtedly recollect my face. Yet I had orders to detain her until the appearance of Lady Molly. Miss Marvel seemed in no hurry. She was putting on her gloves as she came downstairs. In the hall she gave a few more instructions to the porter, whilst I, in a dark corner in the background, was vaguely planning an assault or an alarm of fire. Suddenly, at the hotel entrance, where the porter was obsequiously holding open the door for Miss Marvel to pass through, I saw the latter's figure stiffen. She took one step back, as if involuntarily, then equally quickly, attempted to dart across the threshold, on which a group, composed of my dear lady, of Saunders, and of two or three people scarcely distinguishable in the gloom beyond, had suddenly made its appearance. Miss Marvel was forced to retreat into the hall. Already I had heard Saunders hurriedly whispered words. "'Try not to make a fuss in this place now. Everything can go off quietly, you know.' Danvers and Cotton, whom I knew well, were already standing one each side of Miss Marvel, while suddenly amongst this group I recognized Fanny, the wife of Danvers, who is one of our female searchers at the yard. "'Shall we go up to your own room?' suggested Saunders. "'I think that is quite unnecessary,' interposed Lady Molly. "'I feel convinced that Mr. Leonard Marvel will yield to the inevitable quietly, and follow you without giving any trouble.' Marvel, however, did make a bold dash for liberty. As Lady Molly had said previously, he was far too clever to allow himself to be captured easily. But my dear lady had been cleverer, as she told me subsequently, she had from the first suspected that the trio who lodged at the Scotia Hotel were really only a duo, namely Leonard Marvel and his wife. The latter impersonated a maid most of the time, but among these two clever people the three characters were interchangeable. Of course, there was no Miss Marvel at all. Leonard was alternately dressed up as man or woman, according to the requirements of his villainies. "'As soon as I heard that Miss Marvel was very tall and bony,' said Lady Molly, "'I thought that there might be a possibility of her being merely a man in disguise. Then there was the fact, but little dwelt on by either the police or the public, that no one seems ever to have seen brother and sister together. Nor was the entire trio ever seen at one and the same time. On that third of February Leonard Marvel went out. No doubt he changed his attire in a lady's waiting-room at one of the railway stations. Subsequently he came home, now dressed as Miss Marvel, and had dinner in the table d'hôte room so as to set up a fairly plausible alibi. But ultimately it was his wife, the pseudo-Rosie Campbell, who stayed indoors that night, whilst he, Leonard Marvel, when going out after dinner, impersonated the maid until he was clear of the hotel. Then he resumed his male clothes once more, no doubt in the deserted waiting-room of some railway station and met Miss Lulu Fay at supper, subsequently returning to the hotel in the guise of the maid. You see the game of criss-cross, don't you? This interchanging of characters was bound to baffle everyone. Many clever scoundrels have assumed disguises, sometimes impersonating members of the opposite sex to their own, but never before have I known two people play the part of three. Thus endless contradictions followed, as to the hour when Campbell the maid went out and when she came in for at one time it was she herself who was seen by the valet, and at another it was Leonard Marvel dressed in her clothes. He was also clever enough to accost Lord Montnute in the open street, thus bringing further complications into this strange case. After the successful robbery of Miss Fay's diamonds, Leonard Marvel and his wife parted for a while. 
They were waiting for an opportunity to get across the channel, and there turned their booty into solid cash, whilst Mrs. Marvel, alias Rosie Campbell, led a retired life in Finlater Terrace, Leonard kept his hand in with West End shop robberies. Then Lady Molly entered the lists. As usual, her scheme was bold and daring. She trusted her own intuition and acted accordingly. When she brought home the false news that the author of the shop robberies had been spotted by the police, Rosie Campbell's obvious terror confirmed her suspicions. The note written by the latter to the so-called Miss Marvel, though it contained nothing in any way incriminating, was the crowning certitude that my dear lady was right, as usual, in all her surmises. And now Mr. Leonard Marvel will be living for a couple of years at the taxpayer's expense. He has disappeared temporarily from the public eye. Rosie Campbell, that is, Mrs. Marvel, has gone to Glasgow. I feel convinced that two years hence we shall hear of the worthy couple again. End of The Man in the Inverness Cape End of Chapter 9